From the beautiful city of Hollywood, we bring you Film Forward, the official podcast of the Los Angeles Diversity Film Festival. Hey, hey, welcome to Film Forward, everybody, the official podcast of the Los Angeles Diversity Film Festival. And it's Gimme Three time, folks. That's right, one of our patented Gimme Three episodes. And we have got some really fun movies to talk about today and uh, some very interesting connections to be made with them as well. But before we get into it, if you like what you hear today, please subscribe to Film Forward on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from for weekly episodes. Not only do we do Gimme Three episodes like we're doing today, We also interview filmmakers who are killing the game, and starting in July, we'll be interviewing some of the filmmakers from the annual Los Angeles Diversity Film Festival this year, which is going to be from August 1st through August 14th. You're not going to want to miss that. So lots of great episodes coming up, lots of great episodes in our archives. So like, subscribe, and comment. Give us some love. We'll give you some love back. But as I mentioned today, we're doing Gimme Three Films from the Year 2001. And what a year it was helping me out with this is returning guest and Gimme Three Master, Mr. David Chu. David, welcome back, sir. Thank you. It's great to be back. It's great to have you back, man. It's uh, it's been a few months since we since the last one we've had you on, and it's uh, I'm I'm excited to hear your thoughts on these movies. You picked two movies that I hadn't seen before, which is awesome. All your movies are great, so I'm I'm excited to dive in. Well, thanks. What do you remember about the year? You know, when you think of the year 2001, obviously one one big thing yeah, comes I was to mind. Say, what do you say? What do I think of? <laughs> That's like saying, "What do you remember about 2020?" Mm. Right? Yeah, one big thing comes to mind. But besides that, <laughs> one big thing, which I don't think we needed to get into. Other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, how was the play? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. What? 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 Where? Where were you at in the year 2001? Where was I at? I was, I had just completed my freshman year. Well, I was, no, I was completing my freshman year of college. And I was meeting uh, an individual named Sonia Maru, who you might be somewhat passingly familiar with. I think I just got engaged to her. If it's I the believe, same Sonia Maru. I believe Sonia with a J, right? <laughs> Sonia with a J, yeah. Yes. <laughs> so yeah, Sonia and I were becoming friends. We met in a medieval studies class. I was, I, that's really what I remember it, honestly, was, yeah. um, was about just my first year away from home, being in college, just all the things that come with college, including seeing new movies, you know, getting all these kind of exposed to all these heady ideas and new, you know, new facts and information of trying to kind of make friends and a totally, you know, like, you know, that part when you become a, you're, you're a freshman and like everybody's now been removed from their social circle. So whether you were the most popular kid or the least popular kid in high school, the, the whole table's been reset. Yeah. And everybody has to kind of, you know, figure it out on new. That's what I remember. Which um, is so exciting. It was such an exciting time. Yeah. People were nicer, I feel yeah. like, in that regard. You know, the cliques hadn't yet formed. Um, and there were different people from different walks of life. You know, there were some people who were more well off rubbing shoulders with people who were, you know, you know, they're on scholarship and really, you know, had had fought their way to get there to school. So, I mean, I think I, I don't want to idolize it. I mean, I'm sure there are still, there were still out there stratification or there was still, you know, disparities or whatever. But I, I just remember there's this amazing moment when everything is new and you feel like you're young, you, you, you know, the, oh, you know what it reminds me of? Remember that, um, 
song in Avenue Q. Did you ever see that musical? Yeah. <laughs> Where it's like, I sit on the quad and think, all, oh my God, I'm totally going to go far. Yeah, right. That's the vibe. So when I think of 2001, honestly, that's the vibe I really think about was, was just the world was a world of possibilities. And, and I think that's why uh, you mentioned, you talk about 9-11. I think one of the reasons it hit me very strongly was it for me, there's always that moment that comes in your life, whether it's the Kennedy assassination or Pearl Harbor or for a whole new generation, probably COVID, mm-hmm. uh, where you have that loss of innocence and suddenly you think the world is amazing. Suddenly you realize it's also very dark. Right. And that's a very pivotal year for that reason. For sure. And uh, a pivotal year for film as well. We're going to talk about some really uh, incredible movies here today, some classics and some hidden gems as well. So I'm going to have you start it off, David. We are here. Give me three from the year 2001. Your first film is Lovely and Amazing, which is a a little known indie movie by Nicole Holofcener. Which it stars Brenda Bleffen, it stars Emily Mortimer and Catherine Keener, all of whom would go on. Actually, it also stars clearly have Jake Gyllenhaal yeah. in in a in kind of a minor role, and you know you just suddenly go, wait a minute, is that is that a young Jake Gyllenhaal? And there's so many people who would who would go on to blow up from from this movie. Nicole Hollis Center is a, a fabulous female director. This was a film that really put her on the map. It wasn't necessarily her first film, but it was one that was nominated. She was nominated for Best Director and Best Screenplay at the Independent Spirit Awards. And she would go on to have, you know, a real career on the indie circuit, mm-hmm. as well as to go on and direct episodes of The Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, Inside Amy Schumer, or just The New Black. It's a film about three women a grandmother who's adopted a young black child, a young black girl. And the grandmother has a lot of body. It's all about body images and body issues. The grandmother is getting liposuction. She's white. Her two daughters, one is a struggling artist who's got kind of a marriage that's on the rocks and is trying to sell her art and ends up taking a job with uh, at a one-hour photo with Jake Gyllenhaal, and she's like a middle-aged, I say middle-aged, she's, she's 36, so she's actually, she's younger than I am in the movie, so I shouldn't really use that term. That was so she's funny. Like, I watched yeah. Catherine Keener, I was like, oh my God, Catherine Keener's so young, so so right? uh, so young and sexy, and then she was like, I'm 36 years old, I'm like, oh, I guess she's our age. <laughs> I know, I know, it just was jarring, I know. Well, it was kind of good to see that. In the, in yeah, the yeah, for sure. Um, and Emily Mortimer, who's like a working actress who's like still just got bit parts and is trying to make it. And, you know, Emily Mortimer is worried that she's not sexy enough to be a movie star or to be, a, you know, to really make it in the acting world. She goes to this audition and she almost gets the part, but people are like, oh, she's not sexy enough. Catherine Keener, her character, you know, her husband is is losing interest in her. It becomes clear soon that he's having an affair. And so, she starts to have an affair with an underage Jake Gyllenhaal, which is, you know, not a good move. And Brenda Blethyn, uh, the grandmother, is she's getting liposuction and then the liposuction goes south and she ends up really hospitalized. And even Annie, the, the young black girl that Brenda Blethyn's character adopted, wants to get her hair straightened. And she's, she's really struggling with what it means to be a young black woman in a world that rewards white beauty. Right. But this all sounds really heavy. It's kind of got this, 
it's not told in a very heavy way. It's got this kind of jovial score to it that's kind of like it kind of bounces along. The scenes are are really they're not really adorned with a lot of like trick shots and a lot of like heavy lighting. It's it's very naturalistic. The scenes are, are are really just allowed to breathe and play out in a very human, very relatable way. Even though it deals with heavy issues, it has a kind of like light, almost tongue in cheek, kind of comedic tone to it. Even though it's not really, I wouldn't say it's a comedy, but it's it's definitely got kind of a wry sense of humor that permeates the whole film. So I remember seeing it. I remember seeing reviews of it, and there was specifically one scene that I remember seeing, reading in the reviews, and I said, wow, I cannot believe this actress did this. And that piqued my curiosity in the film. It's a scene where Emily Mortimer's character ends up, she doesn't get the part with this big movie star. Again, that's the scene audition where she's told she's not sexy enough, but later on she runs into this big movie star played by Dermot Mulroney, actually. And he was hot stuff in 2001. He was hot stuff in 2001, I, I know. And she... You know, she he actually he thinks she's attractive and he, he you know, doesn't get her the part, but he does take her on a date and sleeps with her. And there's a scene afterward. And this is actually coming toward the climax of the movie. So I'm spoiling it, but it's a really powerful scene where she gets out of bed completely naked and stands there in front of this Dermot Mulroney's famous actor character and says, I want you to critique my body. And it's powerful and uncomfortable and apparently emily mortimer had a hand in writing some of the dialogue so she was really oh, wow. writing about some of the things that she found insecure about her own body i mean can you imagine just what it takes the power the bravery the, yeah to do that and you know and immortalize a moment like that in film and i should add by the way this is i think you know it's an r rating like you see she is naked like there's no mm-hmm. There's, you know, she's on display, which in some cases, you know, I think they, you know, like some radio shows, they sometimes do like rape my body or whatever. And that's kind of crass. But in, in this case, because it's a female filmmaker, you know, writer and director, Nicole Hall Center, and, you know, Emily Mortimer has a hand in writing the story and it's told from a female point of view. It doesn't feel exploitative. What it feels like is a powerful exploration of the ways in which we dissect women's bodies as a society and we wrap their self-worth up in their physical forms at the expense of all the other characteristics about them. Yeah, that's a, that's a really powerful and heartbreaking. And as you mentioned, it's, it's, it's uncomfortable. <laughs> it's it a little is, uncomfortable yeah. to watch. Like it's not, yeah. as you mentioned, she's, you know, she's, she's naked, but it's not sexualized. And it's right. um, the unfortunate thing is, I've heard conversations like that on a film set before or on a photo mm. st- still set before, yeah. um, you know, in a in a less overt way. But still, the gist of the conversation is is uh, very similar to the critiques that the characters having in this film. And it was uh, it's just bad uh, <laughs> and, yeah. uh, and and a very honest, honest, honest scene. The whole movie's honest. You know, it, yeah. I think that's what I liked so much about it was that the film never tries to glorify these characters. They're very, in a way they're very privileged, you know, like mm-hmm. it seems like they, they, they have money, they come from money. There's, they're, they're not like really struggling, you know, Catherine Keener's character, you know, gets a job for as a part-time job, but it's, it's more to like shut her husband up that she's like not doing anything with her life. Right. But you know, the film is very honest in portraying these women as just like flawed human beings 
very relatable. I like feel felt like I knew, you know, some of these women in relation to my own my own life, my own experiences. And uh, and it's very honest in that way. It doesn't it doesn't sugarcoat their journey. It doesn't sugarcoat their arc. And when they make bad decisions, and you and you watch them sometimes <laughs> making these decisions, like oh my god, why are you no don't do that? It it, it some some stuff plays out like a train wreck that you've seen in real life before. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it doesn't romanticize her affair with Jake Gyllenhaal's character. No. It, it it shows that in and all of its like inappropriateness and it's mm-hmm. all of its awkwardness and the mother catches them and it's just you see like you said you see her making these decisions but you understand why the, yeah, she's doing totally. that but the movie it's so interesting because it doesn't excuse any of these choices it and it shows people having the consequences but you also understand the human paths that people take to making and doing whatever they're doing like another thing about emily mortimer's character is she keeps taking in dogs off the street. Yeah. And probably it suggests something kind of, you know, empty in her or she's trying to, you know, and like that again, that could be romanticized at the end of the movie. She gets bitten in the face again for a film that's all about exploring beauty standards. And her her lip is really cut up from this dog. And you're like, well, and somebody and you actually hear the doctor saying, like, what were you thinking? Just like grabbing this wild dog off the street. And so there are situations where it doesn't create this Hollywood version of what the consequences are. It gives you a very real sense of things. You know, again, the liposuction procedure is the same thing where it, mm-hmm. it she goes and there's a complication and she's in the hospital. And so people are making choices. Sometimes we empathize with the choices and sometimes we're like, oh, like you said, just like, what are you doing? Don't do this. But it's all of them are in this um, milieu of what beauty standards do to women. Right. And, and with the psychology it puts them in. And I think for me in 2001, I'm not going to say I've, I hadn't seen any films from a female standpoint, but like I think it was one of the first, you know, I, in college I started getting more exposed to indie cinema. Yeah. I think we had like a, a small theater and it would play also an eclectic group of stuff. And sometimes they had, I think it was like $4 Tuesdays, I want to say. So you would take a chance on some movies you hadn't seen. Uh, can you imagine $4 for a movie now? That's like a rental price. Oh, um, <laughs> <laughs> but it was for me a real eye opening experience to um, a female driven indie film that was just had no bells and whistles about being about, you know, science fiction or superheroes or anything like that. It was just real people and especially women dealing with moving through the world in which they're always being scrutinized. Like, I think that scene where Emily Mortimer's body is being dissected is a metaphor for how women are moving through the world and constantly having their bodies analyzed and dissected and not just by men, by society, you know, the society that pits women against other women. Some of the film involves, there's a scene where, um, you know, after Brenda Blethyn's character has had uh, complications, the sisters are arguing, her two daughters are arguing. And one of them says, you're the one who's told mom that she needed, she was overweight or that she needed to lose a few pounds and the other sister says well i didn't know she would just go out and get liposuction right and you realize it's driven not just how men examine women's bodies but how even in the society women can be their you know the harshest critics of both themselves and each other right emily mortimer is constantly going on about her arms being flabby and at one point again she she has this actor this famous movie star critique her body and he actually says nothing about her arms and so she brings it up she says 
at the end of it, she's like, well, what about my arms? He goes, oh, yeah, I guess you're right. They're, they're kind of flabby. Yeah, at first he says, you know, your arms are nice. And then she yeah. says, well, what if I do this? And then he's like, oh, yeah, that's that's not good. Right, right. <laughs> like she's like she's seeking, like she want on a masochistic level, she wants it. She wants yeah. that validation that actually this is wrong with me. And the same thing I think about Annie, the young eight-year-old black girl. She gets her hair straightened because she says, oh, yeah, having uh, frizzy, curly hair is like a clown. Which is, you know, oh my gosh, you think this poor child and her um, body image issues. And again, it's so racialized. And then her mother, who the grandmother of, you know, character who's who's adopted her and, you know, later in life, her mother, uh, Brenda Blethyn's character, she sees it and she's very critical. She's like, oh no, your hair was beautiful the way it was. You know, I'm, I'm you know, you shouldn't have gotten it straightened. And you think, okay, it's good that she's being supportive, but then you see Annie actually feels disappointed. Right. And later on, when Catherine Keener says, oh, actually, I like it, Annie lights up because she wanted to do it. And even if she wanted to do it for maybe reasons that we don't think are, are that great, that, you know, she's dealing with racialized beauty standards that elevate white features over black features. You realize Annie just wants to, to sort of have, be validated mm-hmm. in her choices. And at that Emily Mortimer's character has the same thing, like in wanting to know that her arms are flabby, she wants to know that her perception of herself is accurate because there's a part of her that's wondering, is it, is it not? You know, am I crazy? There's so much of this movie. I feel like it deals with both the feelings you have, but also the sense that like, am I the crazy one? Can I trust myself? Right. Yeah. It's, it it brings up a lot of fascinating questions and the characters and the performances are really terrific. Nicole's dialogue is just really Biting and, and wonderful and, and, and never stops feeling real. I recommend you all check it out. This lovely and amazing. It's available right now on HBO Max if you got that. It is worth a watch. Lovely and amazing. Check it out. It is both lovely and amazing. So it lives up to the title. All right. My first film that we're going to talk about is Y Tu Mama Tambien, which is by Alfonso Coron, who is just a fantastic yeah, if, filmmaker. If you have not heard of. <laughs> not heard of Alfonso Coron, you're, you're probably listening to the wrong podcast. But, <laughs> right. but this is, you know, a masterpiece of his. I think this was the film that really got him in front of a lot of American audiences and got the respect of a lot of American audiences, even though he, you know, had made some films before this. The film follows two teenage boys played by Diego Luna and Gael Garcia Bernal. And they are at a wedding. They meet a woman who I think is probably in her thirties or late twenties or something. Actually kind of a similar plot to what happened with Jake Gyllenhaal. Yeah, totally. (laughs) I think they're, I think they're of it. I I can't tell exactly how old they are in this movie. They might be like just of age, but yeah, I think they're like 18, 19 or something in, in, in this film. But yeah, um, They meet this woman uh, at a wedding and she discovers soon after that meeting that her husband has been cheating on her. So she opts to go on a road trip with these two young, angsty, immature horn dogs, and uh, they embark on uh, a road trip. So uh, very quickly it becomes a road trip movie, but like most road trip movies, it explores friendship. This one also explores sexuality, mortality, and it also takes place in the midst of like a big socioeconomic political uprising in Mexico. You know, Vicente Fox is coming into fruition here in the Mexican political arena. And so there's a lot of dualities with the characters, what's going on in the country, and it just becomes 
a really, really interesting commentary on Mexico, on what friendship is, what love is, and why we're here on this earth in a very subtle and masterful way that it doesn't never shows its hand too much without giving it away. There is a revelation at the end of this film that changes the entire scope of everything that you've seen before. And that revelation will knock you on your ass. Yeah. I remember that moment when the first time I saw this movie and, and that ending moment comes and you discover, you know, what Luisa's quest for this freedom and this journey and this adventure is really all about. It just really slaps you in the face and it immediately makes you want to watch the film again. Yeah. I, it was interesting to watch it again, knowing that and mm -hmm. and you appreciate so much more. There are actually two big revelations. One is about that, about Luisa and her journey. She's the woman in her twenties or thirties. And the other is, it seems like there's a rivalry between these two young men. They come from different classes. One is, you know, his dad is part of the ruling political party and the other is not, he's not of the lower economic class. He's not one of the characters, like, he's not like the main character of Roma. It'll take right. a while before, it'll take almost 20 years before uh, Alfonso Cuaron tells the story of those people directly. They definitely permeate this film. Yeah. Indigenous people, really working class people. But Still, Julio is still relatively working class compared to the, I think I'm pronouncing it right, Tinoch. Tinoch, yeah. Yeah, who's played by Diego Luna. Gael Garcia Bernal plays Julio, who's more, you know, I think he comes from a single, you know, single mom family and is much more on the economic margins. And it seems like there's a, both the boys are like both, you know, that these two uh, young men are both great friends and kind of a rivalry. They're both trying to compete for the affections of this woman. Yeah. They're both jealous. Uh, you know, revelations come across about sleeping with each other's girlfriends. So you think it's a rivalry, and it is. But at the end, and I still remember this, something happens that makes you reevaluate their entire relationship. And yeah. every scene with them in. And what the jealousy is really about. Right. Know? And I remember thinking, whoa. Again, those two things made you want to go back and see the movie. You're like, wow. Yeah, like almost immediately. I remember the first time I watched it and it finished, I was like, okay, I need to watch it again like tomorrow because there's so much uh, nuance and and subtlety and Coron does such a uh, masterful job of like stringing you along and keeping it so fascinating and so engaging, but not revealing his hand for those two revelations until the very end. And then when he does, you're like, oh, my God, it totally makes sense. Totally like every, makes sense. Every, everything yeah. that was happening 100% makes sense. Everything was completely motivated. I just wasn't seeing it because, you know, he was showing me exactly what he wanted to show me. Right. It's masterful character development and storytelling. I think one of the things, too, that really works is when you talk about what Quirin is doing, this wonderful sleight of hand where he's making you look at one thing. And the magic trick is elsewhere. Yeah. Right. And you're and one of the examples of it, I was thinking about this film watching it again recently. And I thought, I remember when it first came out, it was scandalous. I think it got an NC seventeen rating. I think there was like a, a like an edited and an unedited version you could see. Because the sex scenes are very explicit and they're very it's very sexy, right? And of course, once you tell people, you know, it's too sexy, you don't see it, you know, everybody wants to see Everybody's it. Everybody's gonna right? go see like, it. Yeah, <laughs> it's gonna go. And so he's definitely getting people in theaters because it's, it's you know, and the, the poster, everything from the poster, you know, looks like a threesome's about to happen. You know, like it's, it's playing into the sex appeal. But the film, like you said, is a, is a road trip through a Mexico in transition. And 
there are so many places where this narrator, this unknown narrator, veers off to talk about political unrest, talk about the lives of the working class, to tell stories of regular, of economic disparity, whether it's a bricklayer who was hit by a car just trying to get to work, or whether it's a small a family that died by the roadside, it, um, mm-hmm. you know, and and trying to tra- transport chickens, or somebody who died trying to cross the border, whose daughter died trying to cross the border in Arizona. It's permeated by the ghosts of history. It it almost feels like it reminds me a bit of one of my other favorite two thousand one movies, Lord of the Rings, and that it it's a land alive with almost so permeated by history it feels like the ghosts are alive there in lord of the rings it's literally true in some cases the ring wraiths and all that but in this film there's almost on the cusp of a sort of magic realism to it there's a sense that the land is is alive with with the spirits of history of people who've passed through it and yet are unnoticed by most of the mainstream world, right? The working class, the poor people. Right. And so Alfonso Cuaron gets you really following, you know, you're there for this love triangle. You're there for the sexiness. You're there for the romance and the adventure. And actually, though, what he's doing, much like putting uh, medicine in something sweet, he's making you learn all of the, and wrestle with all these questions about life, about Mexico, about, economic class mm-hmm. about um capitalism and and political power but in a way that it doesn't feel like you're eating your vegetables again it's this magic trick you're you're, you're sitting there thinking you know you're following the romance and the story of friendship and the story of adventure but you're also imbibing so much about the land and the people and a place in time trying to struggle with its own identity Yeah. And in a weird way, you would think, you know, as we're describing it, you would think it would pull you out of the story, you know, because, you know, the narrator takes these tangents, as you mentioned, you know, like they're driving along a road and the narrator's like, well, if they were driving along this road 10 years earlier, they would have seen, you know, dead chickens and an overturned truck and a a small child with a jacket covering it and and a mother crying inconsolably. And you think like, well, that has nothing to do with these characters. It's going to take me out of the story in a weird way. Like, I don't even know how how it's accomplished, but it almost makes you closer to the characters and it brings you in even deeper into the story. And at a certain point, the narrator starts to, you know, he touches on the actual characters that we're following as well. And he reveals some stuff that, you know, the characters don't know about each other, but that we know, you know, like, you know, the, the, the higher class friend, you know, like, lifts up his friend's toilet seat with his foot, you know, unbeknownst to his friend, you know, like little things like that, that inform their relationship in ways that they don't even know. And the other thing that's interesting about the narration in this movie is when the narrator chimes in, you know, all the other sound design is just eliminated, you know, like the score's gone, the music's gone, the like dialogue, all sound effects are gone. It's just silent and the narrator. And it's very storybook. You know, it's, it's almost as if you're like, uh, you know, like listening to a fairy tale, but it's juxtaposed with like this realism, you know, verite uh, cinematic style. It, it's just fresh. It's unique. And it, it, watching it 20 years later, it still feels fresh and unique. It still like, does. I yeah. mean, it makes me think, you know, there's very few films. I guess all films are in theory. Like if you talk about first person storytelling or third person, I guess theoretically they're all third person. But the kind of omniscient God's eye view narrator, it's not really the case. I feel like most of the time when you see characters on screen, 
you empathize with that character, whether they're good or bad. You're, you're following the journey. You're, you're, fo- you're seeing a film through people's POV. And while you are seeing it through these characters POV, the narration and some of the cinematography and the stories where it, it'll go out, you know, the characters will be having dinner and then the camera will just move into the kitchen where working class, more indigenous people of, of indigenous descent are, are cooking the food to remind you that these characters are all still really privileged yeah. compared to the people preparing their meal. It does have a sense of a sort of God's eye view storytelling where, where we're, we're taking in a hole that's so much bigger than any one character has the perspective to um, see. 100%. It's just an absolute masterpiece. It's just an incredible film. If you haven't seen it, it's a real treat. It's just incredible. Itu Mama Tambien. It's available to rent on any streaming platform right now. And if you live in Los Angeles, check out Cinephile Video, our friends down there, right next to the New Art Theater on Santa Monica Boulevard. Show your local video store some love. It still holds up. Still really, really holds up. All right, yeah. Mr. Mister Chu, your second choice, which I had never seen before, so this was a real treat. Your second choice is? So my second choice I saw in college. It was a sign. I took a class called Japanese Popular Culture, mm. where I met two people who would become my roommates and, and, you know, great friends. And this professor had, like, really exposed me to a lot of great Japanese manga and anime um, and films. And this film called Cairo in Japanese or Pulse is definitely one of the scariest movies I've ever seen. It is probably one of the best crafted, creepiest horror movies. Um, and actually, the other one of the other scariest movies I've ever seen is also on this list. So mm. You'll have to wait to see what that one is. But it is a film. It is definitely a 2001 film in that it is definitely about a fear. There's an anxiety around connecting to the internet (laughs) and ghosts that kind of leak out through your internet connections there's a character there's a main character in the movie who literally picks up a booklet called welcome to the internet and you know has to ask all these questions like how do you bookmark something and and what does the internet (laughs) you know do and there's all that dial-up sound that's like you know they really play to be creepy but is so antiquated um, (laughs) now and so, look, there's a part of you, I am sure, where you just want to roll your... There, there was, this was such a popular thing in, like, late 90s, early 2000s to, like, you know, oh, no, the internet. Oh, no, first-person shooter video games. Oh, no, you know, technophobia as we're on the cusp of the information revolution of the 21st century. So, look, there's a lot of stuff that's going to be a little old and a little cheesy and you're going to roll your eyes at, you know, like, dial-up internet and the fear of the like webcams or whatnot (laughs) right but it is so incredibly well crafted the horror sequences are scary and unsettling without being overtly gory and in fact that's what makes them even more scary it's got a masterful use of sound of lighting of creating this world that feels like it's just getting darker and coming apart at the seams and in the end you think it's a commentary about technology but it's not it's a commentary about loneliness and mm-hmm. that's a universal concept mm-hmm. that's something that's still i was gonna say you know i picked this movie because i love this film in terms of a horror movie but i wondered if it would still resonate with me now that i know what we really have to be worried about the internet for right yeah. there are some scary things about it the movie kind of got it right maybe not right but actually, 
it not only is what it says about loneliness is just universal and speaks to any time and place. But actually I went back and realized if you get past the dial up and the, you know, some of the other things, it actually predicts something really powerful about the internet that the sense there's somebody says, you know, are people online, are they ghosts or are they real? You know, because it's this idea of these ghosts leaking out through the internet into real life. The question is asked, how do you know if somebody's real or not on the internet? How do you know if they're alive or a ghost? And the answer is you don't. And that's really true. Think about all the ways in which people we don't know, we don't know who they are, and we only know the version that they've presented to themselves to the world. They're anonymous sometimes. They're sock puppets. They're hiding behind avatars. Who knows who they are? And yet they break into our own reality. Like these ghosts, they can affect our lives. Twitter mobs and online bullying and conspiracy theories, so much so that it leads to things like, you know, uh, the Capitol uh, riot, so much so that it leads to disinformation campaigns that affect our elections. The internet actually is, in some ways, a scary place. And while it might seem like a Luddite kind of like, well, what are you going to do? Say we shouldn't use the internet? No. But also, it speaks to the terror of the internet and the loneliness. Yeah. The fact that one of the things that makes the internet so powerful and so dangerous is that it taps into a loneliness that feels like it's only increasing in our modern society. As we become more and more isolated from each other, we crave connection even more. And so we start engaging with it online. Look, I'm not going to totally mock or, or belittle the power of online connection. We all basically thank God for Zoom and and all the other ways we connect with each other during this pandemic. We're we're, we're doing it right now. (laughs) We're doing it right now, right? So like, I'm not going to say no online connection at all. And yet I feel like the worst toxicity of the internet is fueled by the loneliness that just seems to be not only permeating society, but just increasing with each year and each generation. Yeah, I was not prepared for how great this movie was. Uh, (laughs) Like just after watching, I was like, this might be one of my favorite horror movies ever. And I just saw it for the first time this weekend. Just a masterful piece of work. And like you said, I mean, loneliness is the theme, which I've never been to Japan, but I've read a lot about Japan and like how that's kind of like a theme. Relationships are going down. Marriage is going down. Earths are going down in Japan. So it was interesting watching it with that view. But then the more the film went on, the more like universal it became. And yeah, just even with the early stages of the internet, it was really amazing how even then so many people were afraid of what has become an unmistakable reality. Like a technology which is intended to bring us closer together can actually pull us further apart from each other. And it's not even just the internet. It's just screens in general that this film tackles. A lot of stuff with the television. There's Mm -hmm. like a lot of interesting use of like reflection in this film. It was a really dense and smart film. I have no idea how... Did Kurosawa write this movie as well? Yes, he did. And no relation to Akira Kurosawa, by the way. I, yeah, I, I, right. was very, I, looked, I had to look it up. But yeah, he wrote it as well, which is pretty, man. 
but yeah, I mean, it's it's it's. I mean, it's really about lost souls. And, yeah, and I mean, this movie could have been one of our picks. Also, I think for when we did our films that embody twenty twenty, this would have yeah. this would have been another excellent choice it's for true. that because it's, like people are disappearing because they're getting lost in either their loneliness, the digital world, however you want to interpret it. And so these streets, these Tokyo streets, are just empty and stark. And I was like, whoa, this is totally feels like this is this is what happened to us last year it's true i didn't think about that but you're right those scenes of the empty streets are hauntingly real now Mm -hmm. we've seen what that looks like yeah it's interesting because i think about the ways in which the internet ghosts don't actually kill you Mm -mm. like they don't kill rip your throat out they spiral you into a loneliness that just destroys yourself right right and i think about like it really anticipates the way that the internet Again, this to- this tool of connection, and we know it's a powerful tool of connection. We, we spent a whole year and a half appreciating it as a tool of connection, and yet, how often have we all like gotten into an argument with a total stranger online and then felt like terrible the rest of the day and angry? Or how much of it's like we put a post out there and we think people are going to respond to it, and then nobody responds to it. It gets like a, a few likes, and then we feel like nobody sees us, and and so. The ghosts, their power to break out through the internet is actually true in our real world. I mean, how how many times uh, have you gone trying to make connection and you end up just feeling more isolated, more lonely, more disconnected than ever? Yeah. And so I think that metaphor, in some ways, I don't even think, you know, at the time I saw it and I thought, well, what are you going to do? Like, the internet is scary. Yeah, but we're not going to stop using the internet. And that's true. But as I look back on it 20 years later, instead of seeing it as, you know, a prophet of doom, so to speak, I see it as, wow, look at all the things that it anticipated mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. our society. Look how much it predicted. Yeah, that was that was what was so impressive was just like how, yeah, how much it predicted and the human element of it that it predicted. Because it's one thing to predict like technology doing a thing because right. you can like draw those conclusions you can connect those dots in a very tangible way right but to connect them on how it's going to affect humanity is really impressive <laughs> it's really <laughs> real, really impressive and horrifying <laughs> really oh yeah i gotta say the other thing you said which is true is like just as a piece of horror mm-hmm. if you're just a fan of horror movies this is you have to watch this film it is one to. of the most well-constructed there's a sequence where a, uh, a character is hiding behind a couch and it's the first time you see this ghost and it's just walking down the corridor in silhouette and the music and the sound and even the way the ghost walks. Yeah. It's just raising the hairs on the back of your neck and you're just, oh my God, it, it, the fear that you feel and it's again it's not because they're sending a a visual uh, a monster with sharp teeth and claws and buckets of blood in some ways it's scarier because you're getting none of that Mm -hmm. it's just this deep sense of just almost like primal fear yeah it's just like fear embodied and the way it's constructed is so masterful. Like anybody wanting to make horror should study this film. It is so well constructed. And it was really interesting also. I went and did some research on its American release. Apparently, it was great that you saw it so early. A lot of American audiences didn't because Weinstein, that slimy sack of garbage. <laughs> oh no. 
bought the rights to this movie almost immediately as, as it came out in Japan. And so it, it wasn't released in theaters in America, or I don't even think it hit video stores in America. So it's great that you saw it so early. But they because they were going to remake it, in which they did remake it in like 2005 or 2006 or something, which uh, that remake was awful and uh, got completely slammed. The Japanese version, Kurosawa's uh, original, didn't get released until like six months before the American version came out. So they released it in America like at the, an opportune time right before the remake was going to come out. And everybody watched this version and was like, holy God, this is amazing. And then it was followed <laughs> up by the complete dud. So it, it had a long journey to get to the States. But when it did, the American audience was recognized it for the masterpiece that that it was. I, you know, I feel really lucky that I think we had like a re, I don't know, whatever region is it region two mm -hmm. DVD and, you know, cause it was a Japanese popular culture class. So he was, he had to set up our professor so we could play these movies and, you know, really made me appreciate God, that class. I, I got exposed to so much stuff that uh, I would not have, I just never would have been exposed to. Again, when you ask me, what do I think about 2001? Part of it is going and taking classes. This is another film I saw in 2002, I want to say, because that's when, by the time, you know, it came out in Japan, then it became part of the class like a year later. Right. I was not exposed to a ton of foreign films growing up. So again, college was a place where I got exposed to indie cinema, foreign cinema, Really just broadening. I, actually, that's where I got to like anime. And a lot of people I know got into anime in their, their teenage years, but I got into it in college. Yeah. My horizons really broadened in terms of film. Like, I think I always was a bit of a film nerd when I was a teenager, but like uh, it definitely took it to a new level in college. And this film was part of it. Well, my 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 horizons broadened this weekend when I saw this movie for the first time. <laughs> it's, a, a good movie. It's, yeah. it's a really goddamn good movie. Yeah. Uh, Pulse, check it out. It is available right now on Amazon Prime. If you're a subscriber, watch it. Watch it immediately, especially if you're a fan of horror. I cannot wait to watch it again just because I, lo I loved it so much. Speaking of techno horror and being afraid of tech in the future and what it might entail and predicting things. AI, artificial intelligence is my second pick directed by a independent film director, Steven Spielberg. <laughs> yeah. Little known guy. <laughs> Spielberg. This is a film that takes place in the future. The ice caps have melted and a lot of the world is partially underwater or completely underwater. And most of the world's day-to-day -day work is being done by robots or artificial intelligence. We are getting creepily closer to this becoming a reality by the day. One company and a professor decide that they want to make an AI that can love. One that has emotions. And they want it to be a child for reasons that we find out later. But they build this AI named David, who's played by Haley Joel Osmond, who... Rewatching this film, I'm just like, my God, this might be one of the most impressive performances ever yeah, <laughs> by, by, by this kid. I, yeah. I just don't understand how he did it. So David, this AI, he's set to live with two parents who think that they may have lost their son. They develop a relationship with David. They take him in. David falls in love with them. They get this manual <laughs> for this for their, this kid. And it says, like, once you say these words, David will fall in love with you and be emotionally attached to you forever. And the only way that you can stop it is to send him back to us. And basically we D 
deconstruct him or we kill him. He said, once you say these words, there's no takesy backsies. He's in love with you forever. And it is, there's nothing you can do about it. So they say the words, of course, because, you know, America and uh, David falls in love with them. And then uh, because uh, Kubrick, Martin, (laughs) (laughs) no good things can happen for too long. Uh, Martin, their real son, comes home cured. He's healed and chaos ensues. Martin is jealous of David. David is starting to feel emotions of jealousy towards Martin. And ultimately, some weird stuff happens. Monica takes David to the middle of the woods and basically abandons this poor robot boy. It's just heartbreaking. This uh, this robot who could feel and hurts and loves, he's stranded out. And he thinks that if he can become a real boy, maybe his parents will love him. So he embarks on an adventure that is just bananas it's part kind of pinocchio adaptation it's an adaptation of this short story called super toys last all summer long by brian aldis and most interestingly this film was developed by stanley kubrick the great stanley kubrick for 25 years like in the mid 80s he kind of like brought steven spielberg into his like creative development of this film because he thought you know like hey Spielberg might actually be the right person to direct this. And he even went to Spielberg and said, I think I should produce it and you should direct it because I think you would, you would do a better job. And, you know, over some years they, they started developing it. Spielberg ultimately said like, I don't think I can do it justice. The technology isn't there. Kubrick wanted to do it for a long time, but he just thought that like he could never get like, no kid could be, could get this performance right. So ultimately it was shelved and then Kubrick dies and his wife shortly after that calls up Steven Spielberg and says, this film will never get made. It will never see the light of day unless you make it. So Steven Spielberg decided I'm going to make this film as my love letter to Stanley Kubrick. And what is most interesting about this film to me, and there's a lot of things that are interesting, but what's most interesting to me is just how very Kubrick and very Spielberg it is. And it is so apparent which parts are Kubrick and which parts yeah. are Spielberg. So it's just really fun to see like two legends of cinema who have very distinct styles, both have their footprint on this yeah. film. And it's uh, it's just really fun. Besides the fact that the movie is just crazy. It's just a, one of the craziest movies ever made, I think. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the I'm I'm still impressed with how much the, the special effects hold up, how the expansive world building that it does, the sense of adventure. Mm-hmm. Um, and in some ways, you know, sometimes you combine two different filmmaker visions and they clash. But in this case, I think they really they complemented each other in really incredible ways. I had not seen this movie before, and I sort of thought like, oh, is this going to be like a weird Kubrick Spielberg Frankenstein film? But I was really pleasantly surprised by how masterful it was and how much I, I was hooked and how much, in, like you said, in some ways that they they have different approaches mm-hmm. as filmmakers. They're so different as as voices. But in some ways in this film, I think it's it kind of complemented each other. You know, one of the, the things sometimes people complain that Spielberg can be too saccharine or cheesy, and that's not always really a fair criticism. I mean, if you look at a film like Munich, for example, that's right. not, you know, I don't think that's true. But in or this Schindler's case, Schindler's List. I don't Schindler's know. List. Yeah, 
you know, but um, in this case, there's a darkness, there's a, a loneliness. It's funny, we say this about technology, but mm-hmm. the other film was about technology, about loneliness. There's definitely a loneliness and a sadness that permeates it. It's very Kubrick, right? Yeah. One of the critiques about Kubrick, as genius as he was, is some people say, oh, he's too cold, he's too distant, right? In Spielberg, is masterful about human relationships and human drama and a sense of wonder, mm-hmm. right? Like he just has a great childlike sense of wonder that he brings to, you know, so many films. And so in this case, even though there's a, the sadness permeates in a beautiful aching sadness in a wonderful way. in the way you want to hear a sad song that breaks your heart, but that's what you seek out. And yet Spielberg adds, you know, in, in all the best ways Spielberg does, it's a sense of adventure and wonder and love and, and such humanity. Mm-hmm. In some ways, they complement each other. And again, I don't think it's compla- you know, completely fair to say Kubrick is a cold filmmaker. I've actually, some of his characters, I, I re- you know, there's a humanity to them that I really love. And I don't think it's fair to say Spielberg is just a cheesy or um, a saccharine filmmaker. He can definitely be capable of really powerful moments of darkness and powerful moments of seeing the hardness and humanity. But that said, the two different styles in some ways blend together perfectly in this film in that it is it can be both achingly sad without ever being depressing and it can be wonderful and adventurous, but elevated in terms of having a, a hauntingness to it that so many of Kubrick's best films have. You know, Spielberg builds the world in great ways, and Kubrick create, gives the world a sort of haunting quality to a lot of his films. And so both of those two play off each other in really wonderful ways. Yeah, and I think that was... I listened to a lot of interviews after I revisited this film, you know, from like Spielberg's producers and... Kubrick's producers and a lot of people involved with this movie. And they said that that was kind of like what they respected about each other's works. Like Kubrick really loved Spielberg's ability to like blend CGI and practical effects and put it into like an emotionally packed adventure film. And Spielberg, you know, really respected Kubrick's ability to tell these deep philosophical stories through the language of film. And you see both of those in this movie. So it's, it, you know, I mean, and I, I guess they did develop it together for, for decades before they actually made it. So it, it totally makes sense. It's just really cool. It's like one of the, one of the, I think one of the coolest, whether you like the film or not, a lot of people like think the movie's too weird or, you know, like not for them. And I, I totally understand why this movie. I love it. I, it's not for everybody, but I, I think it's, I think it's great. But I think it's whether you love it or not, I think it's a cool story to just like to have two (laughs) legends of film like cross paths. And once again, just before we move on to touch on Haley's performance, like it's just out of this world. Like it's it's like you never forget he's a robot, but you always believe he's a real boy at the same point. Oh, my God. I don't know how in the hell that is possible, but he does it. Yeah. He doesn't blink either in this movie. Like that's one thing. That's like a physical performance thing. That's like. I don't understand how that happens, but he doesn't yeah. blink. But then, yeah, like you said, he's like, he's a robot throughout the entire movie, but he shows these, these emotions that are just jaw dropping. They'd be jaw dropping for, for any kid yeah. actor, but he makes you believe that there are emotions that are robots happening. I don't even understand how that's possible, but it's, he does it. I think 
one of the things that's really powerful about the film is he he so captures that this young boy just boy robot just wants love yeah and he wants a love that he can never get and there's a part of you you know it's you know the the macguffin of the films he's searching for a blue fairy from mm-hmm. a pinocchio story to make him into a real boy and you kind of know that that's not really going to happen right like you know that that's impossible and yet he wants it so badly and you don't really know how he'll ever get the love he's seeking and to some degree I would even say without spoiling anything, it's satisfying in its unsatisfyingness, Mm -hmm. right? Like there's a tremendous power in seeing a character want love that is just never going to be fulfilled and yet still finding a way to care about other people, all people that he comes across to form bonds in the beginning william hurt's character says i want to get a robot who can you know i want to create a robot who can dream Mm -hmm. and reach for something that you know beyond what's possible right and so there's a power in this character wanting something and as william hurt's character will later observe wanting something that doesn't isn't real right and that's what makes him so human so human, right? That's what that's what he argues crosses him into being human. Is is that the dreaming of something beyond what you can just see with your eyes? I think at some point Jude Law's character, who plays this really fast again, another really great performance, sort mm-hmm. of being like a robot, but like also a very human person. He plays this character called Gigolo Joe, and at one point, Joe says, oh, the difference between us and humans is humans believe in things that are superstition. They believe in things that aren't real, but we only see things that are quantifiable and identifiable and measurable, right, or real, right, or facts, right? And right. At one point, they go to this virtual exhibit called Dr. No, and is like, are you talking about a flat fact or are you talking about a fairy tale or different categories? And at one point, David, Haley Joel Osment character, uh, says, can I, I want to combine the two categories, fairy tale and flat fact. And in retrospect, that little moment is symbolic of the whole character of trying to combine reality with dreams. And indeed, that's what the what he is as a character is something that's both real and not real. And I think that's what it's beyond just a comment. Again, you could it's easy to watch this movie at the cusp of the new millennium. And say, oh, this is a movie about AI and it's a movie about technology, the same way Pulse is a movie about technology. And yes, it is. But it's also got a very universal theme. Mm -hmm. And it's a movie about what is it that makes us human? Yes. And how do we go through life dreaming of something we can never have? And yet, if we don't have those dreams, we're not really alive. Yeah. But it means dooming ourselves to a a perpetual heartache of never, ever quite fulfilling our dreams. And yet it enables us to go on so many adventures because we have those dreams in the first place. And I think, again, I was so fascinated by there's a sadness that permeates the film, but it's a joyful sadness. It's a wondrous, adventurous sadness. So it's not like, oh man, this is, I'm just got through coronavirus pandemic. I don't want to deal with anything too sad. 
it's not a film that will drag you down, but it is a film, like I said, like a beautiful song that will haunt you and move you in a way that will really resonate, I think, with your soul. And I came to say this film is about more than, like I said, just technology. It's really about dreams. Yeah, it's a film that celebrates or highlights what it means to be human, you know, ambition, pain, hate, love, fear. It explores all of those things. And, you know, it says this is what makes us who we are. And what does that say about us? We don't really know, but enjoy it <laughs> because yeah, uh, because yeah. you're because you're blessed to have them all. I mean, I think there was there's something I got to say too. Twenty years on, I'm uh, a lot of these films. I'm seeing it in a different place, and I think one of the things that this film has made me appreciate is that when you're really young, like I said, when you think you're sitting on the quad and you're thinking, "Oh, I'm, my life is full of big dreams," you don't want to see anything about anybody's dreams not getting everything what they want. 20 years later, failure, disappointment, bittersweet paths of life is a part of being human. And I think I appreciate that now way more than I would have if I saw this movie in 2001. Same. And I hope you all feel the same way. Let us know what you think about it because I'm very intrigued. Artificial Intelligence, AI, directed by Steven Spielberg, developed by Stanley Kubrick. The only film where you can say all those words in the same sentence. It is available right now on Amazon Prime. We are going to take a quick break, everybody. I think I need a break after all that jazz. Good Lord. We're going to be right back. We're going to get even freakier. You know what? When we come back, because David and I are going to give our final picks. (laughs) Give me three from the year 2001. Film Forward returns after this. We'd like to take a minute and give a very special thanks to our new sponsor, E-Minutes. E-Minutes is a company of entertainment lawyers who are dedicated to giving a platform to underrepresented voices by helping filmmakers form companies and other necessary legal entities. They're sponsoring a new award with LADFF called the Emerging Filmmaker Award and giving their services for free to the lucky winners. You can find out more about them by going to LADFF.com and clicking on the E-Minutes link. I'm Sonia, and this is my Movie Minute. Staying on theme for this episode, I want to tell you about my favorite movie of 2001, which is one of my favorite movies of all time. Of course, I'm talking about the one, the only, Hedwig and the Angry Inch. Hedwig is a rock and roll musical. It's fantastical and dreamy, and it deals with some intense topics like oppression, exploitation, and sexual gender identity. Hedwig creates pop culture iconography like Rocky Horror, but with deeper characters and plot, in my opinion anyway. Every shot is such a visual pleasure. Hedwig is one of the most beautiful people ever to grace the screen. The wigs, the makeup, costumes, and sets are characters in themselves, with special mention to the wig in the box sequence. The soundtrack is made up of about 10 awesome original songs, all sung by the cast, The songs are so good, you'll wish you could actually see Hedwig or Tommy Gnosis in concert. They're badass rock songs that also move the plot and create backstory and motivation for the characters. If you haven't seen Hedwig, just see it. If you've seen it, then you know what I'm talking about, and I'm sure you want to go watch it again right now. If the stage version comes to your area, see it there too. 
Hedwig started as an off-Broadway cabaret-type show, and they revived it a few years ago for Broadway as well as touring. Hedwig is available free on Tubi and paid on a number of other sites. It's also playing at the New Beverly Cinema this month on June 29th and 30th in celebration of Pride. That was my minute. Thank you for listening. You know, ladies and gentlemen, the road is my home. My home, the road. And when I think about all the people I have come upon in my travels, I have to think about the people who have come upon me. Tommy, can you hear me? From this milkless tit, you sucked a very business we call show. All right, welcome back to Film Forward, everybody. We are in the midst of another one of our patented Gimme Three episodes. Gimme Three from the year 2001. David Chu is here, and so far he's recommended Lovely and Amazing and Pulse. And I have recommended Y Tu Mama Tambien and AI. And now we've got our final picks, doozies that they are. And you're gonna, you guys are going to trip out. If you got a tab of acid right now, I'd say drop it right about <laughs> now. David, your third and final choice, sir. So uh, Richard Linklater is a filmmaker I've always been fascinated with. He is constantly playing around with the medium. Boyhood, Dazed and Confused, School of Rock is another one. The Before Sunset, Before Sunrise, Before Midnight trilogy. Mm-hmm. He's just a filmmaker who pushes the envelope, but perhaps his most envelope-pushing film of all time is also one of my favorites. It's a film called Waking Life. It is about a character who is uh, a young man who's never named, and he seems to be trapped in a dream, and just hearing dream after dream after dream, which largely consists of coming across people having really deep conversations about free will and physics and metaphysics and philosophy and what does life mean and existentialism and lucid dreaming. Yeah. It is heady, unapologetically heady. <laughs> like he's got people who are actually professors in the movie giving little snippets of, of their ideas along with a host of curious characters, including a cameo appearance by Alex Jones before he became the um, problematic figure that he he uh, has become when he was just a local eccentric. He actually has an appearance in this film. Although you can see the inclinations of it in this movie. You can, yeah, yeah, yeah. It is all done through rotoscope. It was filmed, I think, with like uh, digital cameras, and then the entire thing was rotoscoped. Mm-hmm. So it has this weird, trippy animation where everything is just kind of bouncing around and nothing is really stable, giving you a sense of constantly being dreaming. Our main character, it is never clear there's a part of this film in which the character is not dreaming. And the character at one point starts to realize that he may not be able to escape from being dreaming. He starts to wonder, perhaps he's, you know, somebody theorizes that in the moments of death, that your mind's consciousness, one second of real time can be, you know, an eternity in dream time. Perhaps, you know, you, you sit back, there's a, car- a moment where he almost gets, where he gets run over by a car or almost gets, and you think it's a dream. Maybe he was, he was hit and he's dying or, but maybe the dream ban- began before that, you know, it starts with a scene from his childhood and you start to think, has he always been dreaming? 
and you begin to wonder, is there a difference between dreaming and, and being awake? What is the distinction? Or, or is this a film about, even the title, Waking Life, is this a film about a character who is moving through his dreams as if they're alive or moving who is through his life as if it's a dream? It is, uh, in the process, it will ask so many fascinating questions most of the time when you when you're uh you know I'm a writer most of the time people are like all right be really careful that you know you don't get too preachy write a lecture make it too heady you want to write even in a smart film you don't want to make it too you know this is a film it's not an essay right this film is like to hell with all that <laughs> <laughs> i am going to just slam amazing brain blowing idea after brain brain blowing idea and i'm the centerpiece is I'm going to go seek out people with really interesting points of view, some of which contradict each other, and intermingle heady monologues with like a guy in a jail cell describing in grotesque detail how he's going to torture and kill all his enemies, combined with like just wordless sequences of like musicians playing or haunting sequences of these aerial shots going over the city of Austin. It is unapologetically smart and intellectual and yet also deeply emotional and magical and and mystical i would argue in a way that a dream can be yeah in a way that it just feels like it's not about a plot it's about just a feeling and it just for me and when i first saw this film and every time i've seen it since it just takes you to a place and you just ride through it in the same way that sometimes you have a dream and you're just like you give yourself onto the dream and you just see where it takes you and this is the kind of film that hits you differently each time you watch it because i mean it's really it's a film that begs you to explore yourself more than it does to explore the movie or explore explore the world you know or both uh i mean i've seen this movie i don't know maybe like five or six times I've watched it three times in the past year. Wow. Last year, we had uh, Bing Liu, the great director of Minding the Gap. This was one of his gimme three. And so I, I watched it then. And then I, you know, like six months ago, I discovered the film My Dinner with Andre, which blew my mind. Oh, I love that movie. Oh, my God. And movie. then I was like, I'm going to, this is going to be a great double feature with Waking Life. So I'm just going to do it right now. <laughs> but each time you watch it, it has a new, it gives me a new perspective. It's constantly bringing up questions. And depending on where I am in my life or what I'm smoking, <laughs> I've, got, I've got different answers. Uh, you know, the primary questions and theories of philosophy have ultimately gone unanswered. I think that's like one of the coolest things about this movie is it like it bounces around from like all these different like historical philosophies, all these like, big questions that have been asked for centuries and centuries and evaluated and, and, and stripped down for centuries. What is the meaning of life? What is knowledge? What's next for us as human beings? We don't know, but the journey of just discussing them is fun as hell. That's what's great about this film. Yeah, it really is brain food. It's stimulating. Mm-hmm. It's not even, it's not even about like necessarily with you, you like or agree with every single monologue by all the characters, he encounters it's, it stimulates. You. Yeah. In fact, it's interesting you talk about seeing it in a different light. There were some pieces that I think I'm not sure if it connected with me the first time I saw it relative to others that connected with me more now. Mm-hmm. And others I saw from a more distanced perspective. There was like there's a number of characters who say, oh, it doesn't matter 
which political party you vote for. They're all, you know, the puppet on the left or the puppet on the right. There's a sort of frustration and apathy. You know, we just got through, there was an election in 2000 that um, a lot of people voted for third party or the people, you know, felt a certain apathy between the candidates, which ironically would have a an echo in, in 2016, but it didn't, you know, after, we, after 2020, that sort of level of disengagement, it felt like a distant echo of 2001. It felt like, yeah. you know, oh, yeah. that's before 9-11, before COVID, before everything the Trump era brought us mm-hmm. with its hyper-partisanship and its hyper-politicized situations. So it was really interesting to see that. On the flip side, there were conversations about the holy moment about having a a sort of a connection to the now that I think I felt more acutely having gone through the middle of the coronavirus pandemic. And there were days you would wake up and you really did not know, at least I didn't know, what was around the corner, what would happen tomorrow, would we all still be here, would we survive and thinking, oh God, this is what I have. All I have is this moment. Yeah. That's the only thing I have for certain. And what do I make out of this moment? Because it's the only thing I really feel like I guaranteed I have. The before times feel like a totally different world. I can't relate to my past. It's such a strange, it's so different from now. And the future is like, you know, to take a line from T2, like a dark highway, you know, like I don't know what's ahead. So all I have is this moment. So it's interesting the way different parts of the film speak to you in different ways, depending on where you are in your life and what's going on in the world. Yeah. Where you are, what's going on, you know, like we grow as individuals, we grow in our psyche, we grow in our philosophies. And I think that's, what's so special about this film is just like it, it is evolving as the world evolves. And as, uh, you know, philosophies evolve, it's an exploration of philosophy and, uh, and, and, and what this, what this means, what this all means for God's sakes, yeah. we, you know, we bounce around as humans. It's interesting, you know, like we, we kind of, we, we either bounce around in this dreamlike state where we're either ignoring these questions and kind of becoming a slave to the rhythm or, mm. Yeah. In my opinion, when we're at our best as humans, we are asking these questions, but sometimes those questions can drive us mad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I don't know which one's better, but one of them, you feel a little bit more alive and in tune with at least who we are and, and, and what this all means. Yeah, I think that's uh, there's something that really struck me where he talks about there's a there's a final person he meets with. I'm not spoiling the plot because there is no plot. I mean, it's it's a like I said, it's an emotional journey rather than like about this happened and this happened. But Richard Linklater is the final of the actual director is the final person he talks to. And he talks about this uh, narrative, this idea that, you know, there's only one time and it's just God trying to say, become one with the universe, right? So like God is inviting us into heaven or inviting us into communion with God. And we keep saying no. And at some point, you just say yes, and that's the moment of of connection, of, 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 you know, that's when transcendence happens. Now, look, not everybody believes in God, and indeed, the film is not actually pushing that. It's, it's just, you know, he's playing a character with a particular language and metaphors that he's using. It's not literally about, you know, this religion versus that religion, but there's a sort of a saying yes, right? Right, right. And it goes back to what you're saying about all of these questions, maybe they'll drive you mad. But if the answer is to say no, 
to say no to those questions, say no to that wonder. We talked about wonder earlier with AI to mm-hmm. say no to the, the things that make us kind of dream and ask and wonder these questions about our lives, then we're not really alive. We're right. just like you said, sleepwalking. And even if it makes us a little, it pushes us to the edge and it can be frightening and scary. There's an exhilaration of really truly being alive in saying yes to those moments. You know, the main character says, I'm not actually participating in a lot of these questions. I'm listening to these people talk. And yet I feel very active in that moment. Yeah. Because what he's choosing to do is to engage with these ideas. And that's, I think, one of the power of this film. Some people might dismiss this film as like a series of college lectures and like, oh, why do I want to be talked at? I feel like what this film is saying is there's all these great questions, these great ideas. Just say yes to. Just say yes to those conversations. Just say yes to those experiences. Just say yes to those moments. And you won't regret it. And, and indeed, I think that's one of the ideas that links all of these different conversations together. The only thing I would say, though, I, I was seeing it now that I wonder if you would do differently is it just struck me that it's a very white group of people, not exclusively. Yeah, not exclusively. But it's, but it's like certain a certain like group of people from a certain swath of and he's like doing this in Austin, which is, you know, a pretty diverse city. Yeah. And I don't fault Linklater. Look, he made this in 2001. I think. You know, I don't fall him to the extent of, I imagine if he were to do it over again in 2021, he would probably have a broader spectrum of voices. Just an observation. I mean, certainly not, I'm not canceled. I picked the movie, so I'm certainly not canceling it over on that account or anything like that. But it was just something I, I thought about in relation to the perspective of seeing it now in, in, um, in 2021. Yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty white. You know, maybe he'll he'll revisit. This would be something that I think would be interesting for Linklater to revisit, not to like remake yeah. it or to like do like a a like blanket sequel, but to revisit yeah. something like this would be interesting. And I wouldn't put past Linklater to do it because he is a big fan of playing with time and you know yeah. like doing movies every you know like the before trilogies every ten years he comes out with one and Boyhood he made over whatever 30, 20 years or something yeah yeah some yeah, epics it would it, yeah it'd be interesting to see to revisit some of these conversations and or just see what new conversations have struck up because there's the world has changed a lot since two thousand one and yeah. there's a lot more big questions to explore so yeah if you're listening to this Richard, Richard. Linklater. First of all, thank you. That's awesome. Uh, yeah, second of yeah. all, the movie was incredible. So, food for yeah. thought. Food for thought. Yeah. Waking Life. It's available sober, high, any which way you want to explore yes. it. I'd say awake, asleep. Awake, <laughs> asleep. Yeah. Any which way you want to explore it is the right way. Explore it, though. Waking Life. It's available to rent at Cinephile Video or all the streaming platform, but you do got to pay for it. But it's worth it. Hell, if you hit me up, I'll pay for it. Hit me up and I'll, I'll, I will pay for the damn rental. That's how much I love this film. Excellent choice, David. Thank you. We're going to go from a dream to a nightmare, my friend. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. <laughs> it's a very good way of putting it. Mulholland Drive mm. by David Lynch. This movie is so good. You know, I kind of was like going back and forth of how do you even talk about this movie without giving spoilers? So I just think we're just going to talk about it. And if you haven't seen it, and you're anti-spoilers, you know, and I don't even know if my spoilers are right. 
I don't even know if you can spoil. Yeah, this movie. right. It's I mean, I think, <laughs> I mean you, know, I think, like, you know, I think it's just interpretation. But, it's a movie beyond spoiling. Yeah, I think it's, in some regards, we're yeah. going to talk about some of my interpretations. David's going to talk about some of his interpretations. We're going to talk about it top to bottom, beginning, middle, and end. So if you haven't seen it, watch it because it is yeah. a masterpiece. I'm going to give away some stuff here. So get ready. There's no way to talk. About There's no way to talk it. about it without. And really, you know, the fun of this movie is honestly talking about different interpretations of it. That's sort of the joy of this movie. 100%. So the movie starts off with a a woman who is in a limo. It seems like she's about to get shot. You know, the, the limo driver tells her to get out of the car. As that's happening, boom, gnarly car crash. She survives somehow. She's concussed, dazed, and she stumbles upon a nearby apartment complex and happens to be inhabited by this young actress who is fresh to L.A. Her name's Betty, innocent, fresh blood, and she's played by a young Naomi Watts Naomi in the Watts. role that would make her a star oh, yeah. in America. And yeah. she is incredible in this. All the performances in this yeah, are stellar. So, you know, she is staying at her aunt's apartment, which is this apartment that Jane Doe has stumbled upon. And because she's so innocent and so full of life and, you know, like new to L.A., <laughs> she is like, oh, my gosh, you're hurt. You've had a concussion. You, you don't know who you are. She's, she literally doesn't know who she is. She doesn't know her name. So she, Naomi Watts' character, Betty, is going to help her find out her identity in a Nancy Drew type way. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it in Nancy Drew type of way. And in the midst of all this, we see other characters. One of the main ones is Justin Thoreau, plays this film director who's being threatened. You know, like, you need to hire this specific actress. Or, you know, like, we're going to take your life away, basically. We're we're canceling your credit cards. We're threatening your life. All this kind of crazy stuff. It's a thick and wildly entertaining plot, like... For a good chunk of it, you're like, I don't know what the fuck is going on here, but I'm enjoying all of it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's just building the suspense and you're like, I don't know who these people are. And they're constantly introducing these new characters. And and there's these two guys in a diner you'll never see again. And they're having this dream. And the dream is freaky. The dream is super freaky, yeah. Super freak. One of the scariest scenes I've ever seen. And it happens in broad daylight. That's the yeah. amazing thing. They do a horror sequence. It's just like in total in, daylight. In stark, it's like noon. It's like yeah. sun's overhead. You're just like, <laughs> oh my God, that's horrifying. The scariest thing. And it's just a diner. It takes place at the diner and the dumpster behind the diner. It's like not nothing about it should be scary at all. And yet it's like one of the, I saw it in theaters. I, I was like, I don't know if I could keep watching this movie when I was watching. Yeah. Like, it was so intense. David Lynch, man. So I'll just put it this way. You know, he, he's telling you this story that I just outlined for about an yeah. hour and a half, hour and 45 minutes. And then he completely pulls the rug out from under you and was like, hey, guess what? Everything that you were just watching, that was a dream by this woman that you thought was Betty. Well, no, no, no. Her real name is Diane. And yeah. all the characters in her dream are people in her real life that have kind of found her way into this dream. We understand, like, we see guilt, you know, like her self-esteem issues, her love interests, her hopes, her desires of her past, and her history are all, like, all kind of make sense in this dream that we discover late in the film was all a lie, and she has gone through some crazy shit, and it is ultimately through the dream and through the post-dream elements of the film we see how messed up this character is and ultimately how messed up Hollywood is 
that has done this to this poor woman. Once you unravel the story, which took me a couple times of watching the film to be able to do it, it's a pretty simple story. But Lynch does this amazing thing of like making it so complex in a way that's not annoying, but like really fun. Yeah, layered like like a puzzle box. Yeah, yeah. And there's lots of like connections and homages to like Sunset Boulevard. With you know the Hollywood stuff and and Diane's relationship yeah. and like the the fantastical world that she creates for herself, lots of connections to Vertigo. Yeah, it's a masterpiece. It's just really a masterpiece. I should add, by the way, like you said at the top of this, that is an interpretation. Mm-hmm. I think it's it's one that I would share. It's but my like, interpretation. It, 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 yeah, the film does not, by the way, go out and say, "Oh yeah, it was a dream" or anything like. That. In in fact, Lynch has said, like, people have tried to ask Lynch multiple times, like, what is this movie about? And he says, I don't know. It's whatever you think it's about. You know, like, he is very much of the mindset of, like, the audience interprets what they interpret, and that's what the movie is. That's my interpretation. There's a few different other ones, and that's the one that makes sense to me. And I guess maybe it's the one that I kind of, like, relate to. But, I mean, there's so much symbolism and, like, intricacies in this movie that i mean we we would we would be here for another three hours if we talked about (laughs) if we talked about all of them it's just something to be first experienced because like you can't like watch it and just like not let it wash over you and just experience it like the last 10 minutes it just goes off the walls and you're like oh my god just let it let it wash over you like a brutal wave Right. And then after that, the next time you watch it, then you try and dissect it. I don't know. I don't even know how to analyze it, David Chu. Your thoughts. It is a film that it just, it gets in your soul. Yeah. The best way to describe it. Like I saw it and I've just thought about it over the years. I keep thinking about it. It's impacted me. It's just like I can't get it out of my head. You know, it's, in my opinion, one of the best films ever made. Mm -hmm. It's certainly one of my favorite films. You know, it's interesting to look at this film 20 years on. When I first saw the film, again, going back, and this is kind of a repeated theme here. I saw this when I was young, and I loved the Nancy Drew story, right? Yeah. It was a story about and it was a love story about these, you know, two women up against the world, falling in love, the mafia or whoever, guys in dark suits, <laughs> kind of hard to <laughs> right. tell, say who they are, right? are surrounding them and there is some conspiracy and you get really wrapped up and it's a very, it's the Hollywood version of Hollywood, right? I only appreciate it now. So many of the locations, they have these like classic LA bungalows or this like apartment complex around a courtyard. And I think it was Spanish style architecture. Awesome. Just awesome locations. Oh, it just permeates with the unique LA-ness, you know? So I love that. And then, and the last act, it completely flips and it's like the gritty, depressing, disappointing aspect of LA. Yeah. And I remember being really angry at the movie at the time when I first saw it. I was like, what? I want the romance and I want the wonder and I want the Hollywood version. And I was like so mad that all of a sudden, just when I felt like things were really heating up, that everything got grimy and disappointing and dour. Yeah. But again, 20 years later, when you've gone through the disappointments (laughs) of life, when you've seen a lot of the underside of Hollywood, I appreciated that section way more now. Mm -hmm. And I appreciated the story it tells of coming out there. Betty comes to L.A. and I realize that she's told a certain story about her life, that she's 
a hero in her own life. Yeah. And in the second half, when she's Diane, she sort of knows that she's no longer the main character in her own life. And the ache that comes with that and the sense that life has maybe passed her by and that her dreams were really just illusions and that she wasn't even really the Betty she thought she was. She's actually Diane. Yeah. And it makes me think, even though it's a film about dreams, clearly a film about dreams, I began to wonder, are both versions true? Are both stories true? Because all things, and this comes back to Waking Life, this goes back to a lot of the films we've talked about, all of our versions of ourselves, I think it's a, a line in Waking Life, somebody said, we're all just the stories we tell about who we are, right? And I know what it's like to tell different stories at different times. And I watched the film and I, I think, you know, Betty, when she was Betty, that was real to her. Even if that wasn't the real world, she really was Nancy Drew up against the mafia and falling in love and solving the mystery. And then when she's Diane, she really is Diane rejected, overlooked, depressed in a tailspin of her life and her career. And there's some implication. I don't know. Does she commit suicide? What happens with her? Does she hire a hitman? Where does it go? But in some ways, there's an incompleteness, I feel like, where there's an open-endedness to the story that I, I want to believe that maybe even that itself is a sort of, well, maybe nightmare compared to the dream. But that reality isn't necessarily any more real than the romantic version. Um, that maybe there's another story yet to be told somewhere between the dreams we have at the start of our lives, the disappointments we have in the middle and other parts of our lives. And the next chapters that we yet have yet to write, you know, maybe there's something to be said about a space for wonder. And I think you get that in that last shot of the two of them, the two women together. Is it a haunting sorrow at a world that never was? Or is it a glimpse of maybe some yet untold possibility? I don't know. But I think one of the things that strikes me is I used to wonder, which is the real story? Is she really Betty? Is she really Diane? And now I think about it, I think maybe it just depends on where you are and when you're telling the story and, and what story you're telling about yourself. Yeah, very possibly. I, I think there's, like, like you said, I think there's elements of truth in both. You know, there's consistencies in both, you know, like the her doing the jitterbug, you know. Yeah. And yeah. Justin throws wife sleeping with the pool boy. Like those right. those elements happen in both stories, you know. Right. So like if they're they're happening in her dream, that came from reality. You know, like a lot of times people say, like, what happens in your dreams is is taken from some element of reality, even if it's like a sliver of a moment that happened that kind of like seeps its way into into your dreamscape. So, you know, in a way, I think they're, they're both truth. And I think that is most apparent in the line when Rita, you know, the Jane Doe says, you know, like, I don't know who I am, you know, and I think that is the theme of the movie for yeah. Betty or Diane, whoever, you know, whoever she is, she's trying to find out through this dream and through her real life, she's trying to find out who she is now because she's been through whatever's real or not real. We know that she's been through some stuff yeah, and she doesn't know her place in this mess anymore. Yeah. I think exactly what you said. It's about who are we? Yeah. 
and the multiple selves and the multiple ideas of self we can have. And look, I'm not trying to sugarcoat like Hollywood can be very gritty. It can be very close to the and, and even the romantic version is not glamorizing Hollywood. You know, the mm. Justin Theroux's character is being told he has to cast somebody because the mafia who is presumably bankrolling the movie is insisting on him casting a certain actress. Maybe, you know what I mean? Yeah. And there's there's certainly elements of sexual harassment that these, you know, young women face in their journey. And but that's also really interesting the way Lynch criticizes Hollywood, but he also he still loves it. I think at some point it was referred to as a poisonous Valentine to Hollywood. And that might be a Lynch quote. I'm trying to remember. Like, <laughs> or somebody telling someone else said, Yeah, I'm trying to remember who said that, but like, oh, the, it was the village voice said that. It was a uh, Jay Hoberman was a review in the Village Voice. He said, and it's it's true because there's one of there's some moments where it's both dark and magical at the same time. There's a scene where she practices the scene with the Jane Doe with Rita, yeah, that she's going to audition for, and the movie, and like even she's making fun of the script. It just sounds like terrible, right? And it's totally over the top, over dramatic, like sh- you know, lousy writing. And then she goes to do the scene with this actor who's you know old enough to be her father that she's going to be playing a romantic scene with it sort of seems like he's flirting with her and you're like oh my gosh look at this me too like creepiness right and the director has no idea what he like he just sounds like an idiot right like <laughs> it's the just, worst director ever <laughs> i know he's just spouting off nonsense and it sounds like he's totally disinterested right and then they do the scene he's like oh, i'm going to play it close and he gets closer and you're like oh yeah he's what a sleazeball and then they do the scene, but instead of doing it as this over-the-top argument, they take every line you've heard, but they play it as a seduction scene. And suddenly the scene is really good. Yeah. It's She's really incredible. good. Yeah. She's incredible in it. And it makes you think, God, this is one of the things I love about Hollywood. Right. I love about the movies is sometimes you take something and you just reimagine it in a completely new way. And it, it's not just like an anti-Hollywood movie. In some ways, it's a film about both the seductive trap of movies and by movies, the larger thing about the romantic stories. And I don't mean just romantic as in love stories. I mean, romantic as in the sweeping hero epics we tell about our own lives. And there's something seductive about them. And there's something dangerous about them and corrosive because they can um, give us illusions that make us not appreciate reality. And indeed, I think it's ironically a really great companion piece in that regard to AI. Mm-hmm. And that's a film about we need to dream or waking life or so many things we need to dream. And yet there's something dangerous about getting sucked into the illusion. And that's what this film is about. I, uh, to go back to what I was saying earlier, I realized actually when I said I feel like neither version is necessarily the more real than the other, I'm almost realizing maybe what I'm thinking is there are two par- sides of the same coin. Yeah. We can't go through life without being a little bit like David and AI, just like having dreams that aren't real. How else could we dare to do anything if we weren't a little bit deluding ourselves? But there's a point in which the illusion takes over and it masks evil and there's a great amount of evil in the system and when the illusion you know it hides the darkness what happens is it sometimes just enables the darkness and it it actually keeps us from acting because it keeps us from really addressing the real problems 
it's a fine balancing act in both the stories we tell about our world, the stories we tell about our movies, and the stories we tell about who we are. Like you said, I don't know who I am. Sometimes we have to face the gritty truth, but we also need to dream. And we need to do both. And where the balance lies is something that I think a lot of these films have been wrestling with. Man, oh man, I'll tell you something. 2001. That was, that was, that there, was a year, there right? Was, there was something in the water that year. Right? Jesus Christ. Well, we'll find out when we do this again next year. Yeah. 2002 was also. <laughs> That's right. It's also, is that it? It'd be really funny if we get to a year, we're like, nah, this year just had nothing. Yeah. I mean, I, I, honestly, <laughs> when I was like, well, let's do this again. Let's do 2001 because we had such a great time doing the year 2000 last year. I was yeah. like, ah, this year wasn't. Yeah, it was all right. And then when I like was rewatching these movies that we picked, I was like, whoa, wow, we man, these, this is going in some really interesting places and had me evaluating yeah. all kinds of stuff I hadn't evaluated with myself uh, in, in quite some time. So, well, let me tell you something. I'll tell you one of my biggest pet peeves is when people who just look at whatever's playing in the general audience multiplex, not that, you know, you can't see some great movies there. And like sit there and go, oh, nobody makes good movies anymore. There's nothing good playing. Right. And I always get really annoyed because I feel like there are so many films that are fighting to get an audience. And and actually, to your credit, you do some great stuff with the L.A. Diversity Film Festival and spotlighting those voices that really should be better known and better seen. There are so many films out there every day, every year. I guarantee you, if you look and seek them out, you're going to find your new favorite movie. You're going to find something that touches your heart and speaks to where you're at right now. And foreign, reason, foreign films, especially, I mean, like yeah. if you, if you're like, if you're bored with American cinema right now, like I understand it. South Korea is like, I mean, every year is just like banger, 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 banger. They're oh, just yeah. releasing all kinds of incredible films. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. There's stuff, content that people are making, uh, and they're releasing it online or they're releasing it a little bit here or there in film festivals. One of the reasons I always try to pick some, some surprising stuff whenever I do this podcast is I kind of, part of it's like, I want to give a shout out to films. I feel like, um, need more attention and deserve more love, but mm-hmm. some, but some of it is also, I just want to say to people like get outside your comfort zone don't just see what it's so easy to fall into the trap. And this is where you said, where was I in 2001 when my horizons began to expand? It's so easy to fall into the trap of whoever can just spend $200 million marketing you. Right. And telling you this is all there is to see. Right. Seek them out. There is never a bad time in it for movies. There's never a weak point. There's no. So much good stuff being made all the time. So many fresh voices. Your life will be so much richer. Say yes. Going back to wake <laughs> That's life. right. Say yes. Say yes. Go seek it out. There's so much great stuff out there. Absolutely. That's my. That, thank you for coming to my TED talk. Well, I always enjoy doing it with you, David. Me too. I, this is always so much fun. It's, it's so much fun. We, we seemingly we go deeper and deeper into our own psyches with each uh, passing episode we do, and uh, and I'm, I'm happy to do it. So. God help us for our next one, but 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 but, but, <laughs> I know. but we're gonna do it. So uh, so stay we should, tuned. Yeah, for we that. should do something really really like inner psyche for the next one. It would be fun to do. But th- thank you again for doing this. Always a pleasure. Thank you all for listening to Film Forward, and we'll catch you next time. Our recording engineer and mixer is Anselm Kennedy. The podcast is produced by Anselm, Sonia Maru, and yours truly. Thanks for joining us on Film Forward, and you'll hear us next time.